It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the New Books in African American Studies podcast, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jared Pichetti, and today I have the tremendous pleasure of speaking with Dr. Jennifer Barclay, author of the brilliant new book, The Mark of Slavery, Disability, Gender, and Race in Antebellum America, published by the University of Illinois Press in 2021. Dr. Barclay is an assistant professor of history at the University of Buffalo. Time and again, antebellum Americans justified slavery and white supremacy by linking blackness to disability, defectiveness, and dependency. Jennifer L. Barclay examines the ubiquitous narratives that depicted black people with disabilities as pitiable, monstrous, or comical. Narratives used not only to defend slavery, but also to argue against it. As she shows, this relationship between ableism and racism impacted racial identities during the antebellum period and played an overlooked role in shaping American history afterward. Barclay also illuminates the everyday lives of the 10% of enslaved people who lived with disabilities. Devalued by slaveholders as unsound and therefore worthless, these individuals nonetheless carved out an unusual autonomy. Their roles as caregivers, healers, and keepers of memory made them esteemed within their own communities and celebrated figures in song and folklore. Prescient in its analysis and rich in detail, The Mark of Slavery is a powerful addition to the intertwined histories of disability, slavery, and race. Welcome to the show, Jen. It's so wonderful to have you here. And thank you again so much for finding the time to speak with me about your groundbreaking new book, I'm so happy to be here, Jared. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited to have the chance to talk with you about the book. So before we dive into our interview, Jen, I was hoping you could tell us a bit more about yourself and the journey that led you to the publication of your groundbreaking new book, The Mark of Slavery. Um, sure. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that a bit. Um, I, uh, I did my graduate studies at Michigan State University, where I worked with uh, Dinah Ramey Berry. Um, She's now at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, But when I was at Michigan State, I was um, Dr. Berry's research assistant. um, And, you know, I had the the pleasure of working with her um, 
you know, at, you know, as a doctoral student. And um, one of the things that I um, did for her, like in terms of the work that I was doing as her research assistant, was transcribing um, documents. That, uh, you know, part of that project was transcribing um, like 19th century slave lists that were used for tax purposes. And I was transcribing them, you know, so that we could have these, you know, access to the information, these lists that were readily available. Um, And the lists were kind of divided into different categories where, you know, it would include an enslaved person's name, followed by all this other information, you know, their age, their gender, um, if they had any kinds of skilled labor that they performed, um, all sorts of details, uh, you know, like the color of their skin, um, all sorts of information. And then there was like this little category, it was an unnamed category on the the far right-hand side of the page of all these slave lists, um, where occasionally I would just sort of see, um, you know, blind in one eye or missing a limb, um, deaf or deaf and dumb, as was usually listed at the time. Um, And, you know, it was when I saw deafness that something really um, just sort of kind of a spark went off for me. Um, I, I grew up, my oldest brother is deaf. And I was thinking about my brother and I was just thinking about deafness and the deaf community and, you know, um, just things that I knew about his life. And it made me sort of ask the question, like, wow, like, what would it have been like to be an enslaved person and to be deaf? And I think once I asked that question, you know, it just, it kind of led me into learning more about disability studies and disability history um, that I was able to combine with the work that I was already doing in African-American history and particularly the history of slavery. Um, And that really just sort of brought me to this project. Um, And it's something that, you know, I've been able to uh, just expand in different ways in terms of, of thinking about all these different aspects of people's lived experiences, but also just sort of broader ideas about race, I guess, in the 19th century. Wonderful. Would you mind situating your book, The Mark of Slavery, within the broader literature of slavery studies and also the burgeoning field of the new disability history for our listeners? And by that, I guess what I mean is what scholarship or scholars do you see yourself most in conversation with? And also, how does your work expand or build upon these existing historiographical conversations? Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. Um, You know, I think that there are several sorts of um, fields and, and kinds of ways that my work makes different kinds of interventions in the scholarship. Um, Obviously, you know, I'm very inspired by scholars of disability. Um, You know, scholars, I I, I sort of found my way into the field by reading the work of folks like Douglas Bainton, um, but also, you know, disability scholars like Rosemary Garland Thompson, um, and then other historians like Susan Birch and Hannah Joyner, Dia Boster, um, even folks like Jim Jim Downs, um, whose work connects in different ways with disability. Um, these were all folks that were really sort of, um, I guess, my entry into thinking about uh, slavery and disability, particularly. But Doug Baton's work, I think, had a tremendous influence on the way that I um, thought about my project. Um, he wrote a really influential essay um, that was part of the collection uh, called The New Disability History, uh, American Perspectives, that was published in the early 2000s. And this essay, I mean, folks cite it all the time, um, even to this day, disability and the justification of inequality in American history. And I feel like Doug's article, um, you know, sort of did for disability um, 
like what folks like Joan Scott did with gender um, and sort of thinking about disability more as a category of analysis, that it's about people's lived experiences, but also that negative ideas about disability could be used um, to disparage groups of people, um, could be used in a way to attempt to justify the inequalities that they experienced in American life. Um, and Doug Baton looked at, you know, enslaved people. He looked at women in the 19th century, and he thought about immigrant populations and the ways that disability rhetoric kind of worked in relationship to these different groups of people. Um, so his work was very, very influential to me. But I, as I said, also folks like Susan Birch and Hannah Joyner. Um, they wrote a really powerful book called Unspeakable, the story of Junius Wilson um, about a black man uh, from the South, from North Carolina in the Jim Crow years who was deaf. Um, and their work really sort of talks about, you know, his life and his experiences and draws attention to that intersection of race and disability in his life. Um, from which I drew a lot of inspiration. But I think in other directions, you know, historians of slavery obviously very much shaped uh, the work that I do. Um, I was very much inspired by the classic scholarship of folks like John Blassingame and Herbert Gutman and Deborah Gray White um, for the ways that they challenged us to think about slave families and communities, um, as well as how factors like gender shaped um, people's daily lives under slavery. Um, I clearly built on that by thinking about how disability did the same for people. Um, so I'm very much indebted to Deborah Gray White uh, in particular, but also folks like Jennifer Morgan, certainly Stephanie Camp, uh, whose work very much inspired me in terms of thinking about the body um, in slavery, thinking about the body as a space of resistance, um, just the really creative and interesting ways that she, uh, that her work, um, you know, really mapped out those kinds of ideas. And then, of course, the work of Dinah Ramey Berry, who was my advisor throughout the process. And then I think finally, I would say um, that my work also is very much interested in the intellectual history of race. So there's a whole contingent of scholars there who my work is sort of engaging with. Um, in a broad sense, you know, I was very influenced by and very much in conversation with um, like black feminist theories about intersectionality, but also the meta language of race. Uh, I was very interested in thinking about how disability is an aspect of that meta language of race that Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham uh, writes about. Um, but then also thinking about the relationship between you know, disability and race doesn't necessarily mean only thinking about disability and blackness. It means thinking also about whiteness. Um, so in that sense, my work is also indebted to the work of scholars like David Rodiger, um, who really sort of pushed, um, you know, pushed the, the, the boundaries in that sense years ago. Um, and I was able to kind of find a way to think about how, you know, not just disability, but also ideas that sort of value and um, privilege able-bodiedness, sound-mindedness, normality, um, became linked to whiteness um, as a way to sort of produce and maintain white supremacist ideologies. Um, and then I guess the last thing I wanted to mention, too, um, is this the work of the late um, Christopher Bell, uh, who pointed out, you know, over a decade ago, um, that, you know, we, as scholars, we really need to be attuned to the relationship between race and disability. Um, he critiqued disability studies, uh, which he aptly called white disability studies, uh, for the ways in which the field um, sort of leaves out discussions about blackness. Um, and I know that more and more scholars today are sort of taking up the challenge that he put forth um, all those years ago. Folks like Dennis, Ty uh, Dennis Tyler and Terry Pickens and Sammy Schalk. Um, but I feel like more historians need to do this kind of work. So I was trying to um, engage with that as well. Thank you so much for that really uh, thorough answer and also 
for the reminder about uh, Professor Bell's really important work. Um, one of the things I, I enjoyed most about your book, Jen, was your imaginative and truly innovative reading of a wide array of archival sources, which is something I'd like to discuss, you know, in greater detail momentarily. But many of these sources, I think, you know, the main one that comes to mind were the interviews with former, formerly enslaved individuals that were recorded by uh, members of the WPA during the Great Depression, but also the memoirs of notable 19th century Black Americans, including Frederick Douglass and Harriet Jacobs, to name but a few. Um, you know, th these sources have been analyzed by a number of historians of slavery in the past to paint a textured portrait of everyday enslaved life and will likely be a familiar, uh, very familiar to many of your readers. But it's interesting to me to think about the, you know, the the groundbreaking nature of your work and to think about, you know, to conjoin the histories of slavery and the, the new disability history. Um, I was hoping that you could give our listeners an idea of how you approach the historical record and how you were able to construct such a thoughtful meditation on the lives and also the experiences of enslaved people with disabilities, given the pervasive silences that are embedded in these records. Sure, that's a, a really great question. And, you know, it's one that often comes up, uh, you know, over the many years that I worked on this project, it was really interesting, because I would talk with other historians and scholars, and they would say, well, what sources are you using? Like, you know, this has to be such a sort of narrow, small group of people, like, are you able to find materials and information about them? And, you know, it's always surprised people, um, you know, how I've been able to use those really well known sources, like you mentioned, you know, Frederick Douglass, and Harriet Jacobs and, you know, these um, primary sources that, that folks are very familiar with. Um, and like, that's always been a surprising thing for folks. Um, but it's actually not surprising if we think about it from a disability perspective. Um, I mentioned a few minutes ago, um, the historian Douglas Bainton in that classic essay that he wrote, Disability and the Justification of Inequality in American History. And that piece is so often quoted for one line um, in which he says that disabilities everywhere in history once you begin to look for it, um, but that it's conspicuously absent in the histories that we write. And I think that these examples, uh, you know, of these really well-known historical sources, it's a perfect depiction of this. Um, you know, Frederick Doug Douglass talks quite a bit about disability um, in his autobiographies and, uh, you know, like, so, so there are really well-known sources in which disability comes up often if you're paying attention to it, if you're attuned to it, if you're listening to it. Um, but I think, you know, I've also had to learn and, and you know, borrow strategies and, you know, examples from other scholars of, uh, of, dis of uh, slavery, for instance, you know, by in terms of looking at uh, finding sources where there might be one small sort of reference, um, you know, but from which we could extract extrapolate a lot more information, right, from those small clues that we find. Um, so sometimes I would find references to enslaved people with disabilities and, you know, very brief references, um, like one that immediately comes to mind for me is the reminiscences of a Southern white woman. Uh, she was from a slaveholding family and, you know, she was writing down, you know, just her reminiscences about her childhood and things that she remembered. Um, 
about, you know, growing up on this plantation where there were, you know, enslaved people and, you know, she's talking about different relationships with people and all these different things. And at the very end of this you know, narrative, she starts to talk about a slave wedding that she remembered, um, you know, and she's talking about all these folks who came in from different parts of the state, um, you know, enslaved people who lived elsewhere who came in for this wedding of enslaved people. And, you know, she recounts all of these details about this event. And then almost as a sort of throwaway phrase, she says, oh, and almost all of the slaves associated with the wedding were deaf. So it was just this really sort of casual comment that, you know, allowed me to then sort of start to dig into this event to see what I could find out about those enslaved people who were involved in this, um, in this wedding, uh, who were involved in the wedding party, who was the, you know, the bride and the groom, like, what could I find out about them? And so it was, you know, these little clues that I could, you know, sort of use to get purchase and to start asking questions. And then finally, I think um, another thing that scholars, both of slavery as well as disability, um, have sort of taught us is the need to be able to, you know, almost to imagine or to provide some sort of speculative, very informed speculation about what people's experiences um, were like whenever we have some access into, you know, events that happened. Um, and I think that that was a, an important part of my work for me was trying to find those places where I might imagine um, and talk in an informed way about how folks would have experienced disablement um, in different contexts and in different circumstances under slavery. I vividly recall that that moment. I believe the, the, the plantation that you mentioned was, it was near Selma, Alabama, wasn't it? That's um, correct, yeah. And, and I remember the, the, you mentioned the fact that the, the, the woman writing the, you know, in her, her narrative says something uh, about enslaved folks coming from, uh, coming from as far away as Mobile, which I thought was so fascinating, but also, um, and I think you do such a wonderful job describing the, the strength of that community and the fact that these connections, despite, you know, separation or sail or what have you, the forces that led to that geographic distance, that they were able to still maintain, you know, social bonds despite the distance. It was such a, a beautiful moment in your in your larger book. Yeah, absolutely. That was one of my and remains one of my favorite sort of sources and examples that I came across. Um, you know, the, the scholar of deafness, uh, Christopher Krentz at the University of Virginia, um, when he read that, <laughs> he said, oh, this is historical gold. Like, this is the stuff that we look for that, you know, and it's just this one small line. But to be able to reconstruct even some parts of that, like it really does speak to, as you said, like these really amazing bonds and the sense of community um, that deaf slaves were able to maintain across such large distances that they were still able to come together for a wedding um, of a friend and a loved one, you know, so it was just an amazing and really powerful story. Absolutely. Something that was mentioned in, in you know, in the introduction of your, your work um, is that one estimate suggests that as many as one in 10 enslaved people lived with a disability in antebellum America. And I'm wondering if you could give our listeners an idea of where this enduring statistic originated and do you believe it to be accurate? Why or why not? Sure. Um, I mean, I, you know, I'm not a, a historical demographer, so, uh, you know, I, I can't, you know, 
100% confirm this mm-hmm. statistic, but it comes from uh, a 1954 study that was done by um, a scholar, William Postel. Um, and he, uh, you know, surveyed kind of chronic illnesses and physical impairments among enslaved people in the Antebellum South. Um, and he arrived at this number. Um, you know, he looked across several different states. Um, you know, he called information from a number of different sources, specifically census records and other places where he was looking for information about illnesses and disabilities that enslaved people experienced. And he arrived at this number. And, you know, in some ways, this number was kind of implicitly uh, confirmed as well by Jeffrey Forrett, uh, who published an article in 2016 um, in the Journal of Southern History, uh, where he looked at census data uh, from the 1850 and 1860 censuses um, from several different states. But I mean, you know, census records are not always 100% reliable. And I think, you know, it's it's difficult when we think about um, quantifying disability in this way, because it begs the question, right? Like, how do we define mm-hmm. disability? And what kinds of disabilities mm-hmm. are we talking about? And um, so, you know, I, I, I always, you know, say that we, we have to take these kinds of numbers with a grain of salt. But you know, the other thing that we might think about is if we think about estimates even from today um, about, say, for instance, the you know number of people with disabilities in the American population, um, those, those statistics, again, vary widely based on what kinds of disabilities you're looking at. Um, but usually the number that's typically put out there is roughly 13% of the population. Some folks would even say 20% of the population. So, you know, that sort of tracks. Um, and for me, it also kind of resonates um, just based on, you know, my own experience working with various um, documents, plantation records and other things, um, you know, where I could see the numbers of people um, who lived with different disabling conditions. And, you know, it always sort of seemed to be in about that range. Thank you. Um, In the introduction of The Mark of Slavery, you define disability both as an embodied or lived human experience, as well as a socially and uh, culturally constructed category or metaphor that changes over time. I was hoping you could say a bit more about each of these definitions and also how you differentiate between the various embodied experiences or impairments that shape the lives of the enslaved on an everyday basis. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. I think, you know, to sort of understand this part of my work um, and the way that I sort of think about disability in this kind of two-pronged way, right, as as a lived experience, but also, you know, um, as a socially and culturally constructed category um, really sort of originates with, um, you know, the ways that disability scholars um, themselves have talked about and thought about disability. Um, And I think disability scholars, you know, often talk about, uh, for instance, the social model of disability as opposed to like the medical model of disability. So the medical model of disability would be sort of more clinical understandings of disabilities, um, you know, physical impairments and sensory impairments, you know, a, a whole range of conditions that we today think of as disabilities. Um, And the ways in which, you know, medicine can diagnose these conditions and in different ways sort of treat these conditions or provide some way of managing them or in some cases even, quote unquote, correcting or fixing um, various conditions. Um, And disability scholars, you know, have sort of juxtaposed that model of disability with what they refer to as the social model of disability, um, which really sort of thinks about Um, people living with disabilities and the experience of disability in a different way. 
the social model of disability as it was originally sort of articulated uh, makes a distinction between impairment and disability. So impairment would be, you know, the actual lived condition, the embodied condition that a person with a disability lives with. Um, But disability is something that actually kind of derives from the outside world um, and is actually more connected to the ways that people understand disabilities and, um, you know, the ways in which people might uh, pity those with disabilities or provide different, you know, enact different kinds of barriers to, uh, you know, for people with disabilities in terms of their ability to participate in, you know, daily life. And these could be, you know, attitudinal barriers, again, like, you know, pitying people with disabilities or, um, you know, having different, uh, you know, sorts of, you know, feelings of unease about people with disabilities or barriers could also be physical, right? Like environmental barriers, um, not having, you know, access to spaces, uh, you know, for wheelchair users or not having access to Braille, things like that. But that distinction is really important because it makes a distinction between, you know, the embodied aspect of disability versus the sort of socially constructed part that comes from without that actually creates these disabling circumstances. And so that was really central for me. And in that model, you know, it's been complicated, I think. I I think today, uh, you know, folks would say, yeah, it's difficult to make a a really sharp distinction between impairment and disability in this way, Um, you know, that impairments themselves could also be socially constructed and might change at different historical time periods. Um, The way I think about this might be the difference between thinking about the difference between gender and biological sex, right? Um, That was a really useful way of sort of thinking about gender and, and the transformation of gender into a category of analysis. But, you know, today we recognize that even biological sex as, you know, a category or categories is socially constructed and, you know, we've challenged these ideas of binaries and things like that, Um, but it's still a useful model, right? And I think that that's what the social model of disability um, did for the field, and that was really important to me in sort of thinking about my book, because on the one hand, it, it, you know, allowed me to think about everyday experiences and how did life with a disability, like, shape Um, you know, how people experience slavery, um, how did it impact them, like, you know, in in various ways. Um, But then it also allowed me to think more broadly um, about the ways that disparaging ideas about disability, that sort of ableism was connected to um, how race was being constructed and how that sort of shaped, um, you know, Americans' racial ideologies, like writ large. Absolutely. Thank you so much for those really helpful distinctions between the two um, and, you know, in terms of laying out the, the ground, you know, the, laying out the, the larger conceptual models that you use and then also ultimately deploy throughout the book to really tease out the differences and also to demonstrate, as you just mentioned a moment ago, uh, the, the perceptions and attitudes towards versus the embodied experience, which I think throughout you do such a wonderful job balancing the two and the perspectives uh, themselves, despite the, you know, the scant nature of, of archival records that are written in the first hand uh, by enslaved individuals with disabilities. Um, but in, in chapter one of The Mark of Slavery, you really creatively and compassionately reconstruct their everyday lives, as I mentioned a moment ago. And in doing so, you disrupt the hegemonic tendency among historians of antebellum American slavery to place able-bodied enslaved individuals at the center of their analyses. So as you analyze planter account books and runaway advertisements, um, probate records, and other archival records, I'm curious to know what types of disabilities or impairments among the enslaved that you were able to discern 
and also inversely those that you weren't able to. Um, and I guess just to add a secondary question to that were, um, if, if, you, if you were able to determine whether these conditions were congenital or acquired and how you differentiate between these two uh, types of, of impairments in your work. Right. Um, yeah, like this was uh, one of the first kind of challenges for me in writing this book, because this really hinges on, again, how do we define what we think of today as disability? Um, how did people in Antebellum America define disability? How did slaveholders define disability? And how did enslaved people understand, right, like these embodied conditions? So I really sort of had to cast a wide net um, when I looked, you know, at the range of primary sources that I looked at, um, I wasn't able to, for instance, just kind of hone in on one kind, like and say, oh, I'm going to look at the experiences of enslaved people who were deaf or of enslaved people who were blind. Like I had to sort of cast a wide net in terms of thinking about sensory disabilities and uh, physical disabilities, um, thinking about, uh, you know, cognitive or intellectual disabilities, psychological disabilities, um, kind of across the gambit. Like, and again, these are categories that, that we've constructed today to think about these various conditions. So at the time, it meant looking for things like madness, for instance, right? Like, uh, which, of course, we don't use that as a diagnostic kind of category today. Um, but, you know, these were... The this was the language of the of the of the mid nineteenth century, and you know that makes it challenging, but also really interesting um, in terms of thinking about the role of disability, but also thinking about how you know race kind of intersects with that. Um, but yeah, so I, I had to sort of cast a wide wide net, and I feel like it was much easier for me to. Um, to locate information about or references to enslaved people, certainly with physical disabilities, um, you know, I think because they were interpreted as, you know, like most the most immediate kind of disability that would impact someone's capacity to labor, their ability to labor, their perceived ability to labor, I guess I should say. Um, I, you know, I also came across plenty of references to enslaved people who were deaf or blind or experiencing various, um, you know, degrees of deafness or blindness. Um, I think it was much harder to locate, um, you know, psychological disability or what some folks would think of today as mental illness. Um, you know, and, and I think that's, you know, sort of a product of the mid 19th century. And again, just how uh, sort of nebulous those boundaries um, were. And also, you know, like just how, um, I don't know how, how easy, how easy it was to sort of move the goalpost, right, about like how we might think about different conditions of madness or depression or whatever. Um, and the ways that the, those were um, mobilized in very strategic ways um, in the the antebellum years. Um, but I was definitely able to make distinctions between congenital and acquired conditions. I mean, there were, for a range of uh, a range of reasons, um, you know, there were many children uh, who were born with congenital disabilities and slavery. Um, if we think about the kind of material conditions that their mothers um, were forced to endure, right? Like the hard working hours and the, the hard labor um, that pregnant mothers um, had, were forced to endure, um, not having access necessarily to adequate um, food and nutritional resources, um, a, a whole slew of things that could have impacted you know, fetal development, like while they were um, carrying their children uh, that could lead to congenital disabilities among children, enslaved children. Um, but then, you know, there were also many ways that enslaved people acquired disabilities, whether, you know, we're talking about labor accidents or, um, you know, really violent disabling punishments. 
uh, you know, there was there were many ways that, that the institution of slavery itself um, was a very disabling institution. So I, I, I really sort of focused on thinking about those different aspects. And I feel like that was an important part of my work in that first chapter, because, you know, a lot of times, even in sort of disability studies, scholarship has sometimes been critiqued for thinking more about, you know, the sort of metaphorical ideas about disability and less about the actual embodiment of disability. Um, so I was very um, concerned, I think, and, and interested in making sure that I um, talked quite a lot about the embodied experiences of disability and, and just how much they were shaped by the institution of slavery. Absolutely. And I think so many of the stories that you tell in your book are really so poignant um, and yet have remained so overlooked or neglected in the existing literature until now. And one of the many examples um, that you talk about were the individuals who acquired sensorial disabilities, uh, such as partial or complete loss of, of their hearing. Um, and to, you, you sit with, you know, the, the transition is then to think about how the acquirement of this of this impairment uh, would have forced these individuals to readapt to their surroundings, to their lives, to their labor patterns, the emotional fortitude that it would have required, um, and who from whom they sought out the affirmation and support, um, having acquired um, you know these impairments. But also, I think that um, you know, in in terms of uh, just the the logistical challenges that some of these impairments might have caused individuals. Um, I think that what when I was reading through the initial chapters of your book, I was so struck by the fact that it's there's so much of this focus on the diagnostic or medical that we lose or the emotional or the practical elements of, of these lived experiences are lost um, by focusing strictly on the medical model of disability. And so in, in the literal and in, in the emotional sense, how did enslaved people with acquired impairments or disabilities adapt to these new realities? Yeah, I think that's such a, an important kind of question, an important issue. And and again, this was one of the struggles of writing this book, because oftentimes I didn't have, you know, a, a, an enslaved person's firsthand account of what it was like um, to become disabled, right? Like maybe from a labor accident or something like that. Um, but what I could do was, you know, like read carefully and try to discern as much as I could, sometimes even from, you know, things like medical, uh, you know, literature, like, you know, uh, medical journals where, you know, specific cases might have been recounted by a physician. Um, like I'm thinking, for instance, of, of a young child um, who was losing his sight. And, you know, there was a, um, you know, an article in a medical journal, a Southern medical journal um, that sort of talked about, you know, treating this child and sending him away to do a surgery on his eyes. And, you know, he was sent away for, for several, you know, several weeks, a couple of months. Um, and, you know, finally, when he returned home, you know, like they, they were just unable to really help with the, the vision problems that he was having. And, you know, the the child was essentially blind. Um, and, you know, the, the physician talked about it in the very sort of straightforward way, like a very clinical way that you would expect to read in a medical journal. Um, but for me, I was thinking about, wow, like what would that have been like for this kid to be separated from his family and his community and sent, you know, several hours away to a hospital, um, you know, and in an Antebellum America, hospitals would have had their own, uh, you know, like folks that had their own ideas about hospitals, like as being places where people went to die, 
right? Like hospitals weren't <laughs> trusted spaces or institutions where one would necessarily want to find themselves, um, especially without the care and protection of their families. And what would this have been like for, uh, you know, this child's mother and, you know, his parents and siblings? And um, and so sometimes, you know, it was just asking those kinds of questions. And I, I didn't always have the answers to them, um, but to at least even speculate about those sorts of things and to ask the questions, um, you know, using a very informed sense, um, drawing on disability scholarship um, and sort of disability culture to make those kinds of connections, um, I, I think could sometimes be incredibly powerful. Definitely. I think that there, there's one moment where you kind of tease out the, the archival silences and you say, you know, although the, the I believe it was this, this, uh, this story that you were mentioning a moment ago, um, you know, although the, the article does not mention, um, you know, who would have changed the, ch- the child's gauze and made sure that the wounds were kept clean or comforted him, you know, throughout the process of either, you know, periodic bouts of regaining his, his sight and then losing it again. Um, that was a, a really uh, touching moment, I think, where you were able to demonstrate the care work and the, you know, the, the value of the, the socially reproductive labor that was being performed um, by members of the enslaved community to attend to those who um, had uh, undergone, um, you know, scenarios that would have required, um, you know, additional support due to either temporary or uh, permanent loss of, of a sensor, some other impairment. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that was, those were the kinds of narratives that I think were really poignant and powerful to sort of talk about. Um, I tried to do that as often as I could, you know, um, particularly the, the sort of first chapter, but in, in later chapters in the book as well. Um, you know, there are so many different ways to read sources against the grain to try to access that sort of information. Um, and, you know, I think once it's, you know, when it's sort of carefully done, it can paint a picture um, of those kinds of just sort of social dimensions of disability, whether it's, as you said, the care work that other folks provided or, um, you know, just the, 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 the emotional um, aspect of like how, you know, people with disabilities would have felt um, being devalued in specific ways. And sometimes I would actually come across firsthand accounts of those things um, that would also lend um, some really important insights into, into what that was like for folks. Mm-hmm. I think this provides an, a, a wonderful segue to discuss chapter two, um, which in my opinion really is the, the crown jewel of the mark of slavery. Um, it's, I think for our listeners, it's the absolute must read chapter of, of Jennifer's book. And here you really set yourself apart from other scholars by moving away from medical or clinical approaches to the study of slavery and disability. And instead, you do such a wonderful job reframing the contours of everyday enslaved life through the prism of what you call the social relations of disability. And I was hoping that you could uh, please define what you mean by this phrase, the social relations of disability, and also how it connects to uh, your larger intervention of reimagining the enslaved families and communities through the lens of disability. Yeah, thank you so much for that, um, you know, really kind assessment of this chapter. It's actually one of my favorite chapters of the book as well. Um, You know, I feel like this is the chapter that really sort of highlights um, the kind of work that can be done, right, whenever you sort of combine uh, you know, an intervention into the history of, of slavery um, with, you know, a, a disability insight, right, to kind of write a disability history of slavery. And that was really what my goal was with with this chapter, was to really sort of think about, um, you know, 
disability from within slave families and communities and how, you know, how disabilities were sort of understood and people with disabilities were understood and, um, and how they sort of fit into these spaces. And for me, like that really required um, thinking about, I guess, two sort of opposing forces. Uh, on the one hand, you know, I had to sort of think about the ways that enslaved people with disabilities were devalued by slaveholders. I mean, these were slaveholders, slave traders, like folks who were assessing people's worth based on their perceived capacity to labor in this very sort of, you know, uh, rigorously kind of economic sense that they were just primarily concerned really with the bottom dollar, right, with their profits. And, um, you know, because enslaved people both embodied wealth for slaveholders, but also produced it through their labor, um, you know, the sound of their bodies, like their able-bodiedness, their sound-mindedness, like these were things that were really important to slaveholders because they were thinking again about their profits. Um, And for, you know, enslaved people with disabilities, they were just utterly devalued from the perspective of slaveholders. But when we sort of flip that narrative and think like from within slave families and communities, how were these very same people understood? And, you know, that devaluation really provided a sort of space um, from, from which, you know, within that space, enslaved people with disabilities could provide really important and significant care and labor um, for their families and communities. And like, that's what I was thinking when I was thinking about the social relations of disability is like, how did the presence of disability impact these sort of social spaces um, and relationships between and among enslaved people, um, both disabled and non-disabled, right, within family units, within the larger slave community. Um, And you know, again, I, I think that this particular chapter, it was for me as well, like the most, one of the most powerful chapters of the book, because I was able to sort of discern some of the, like add a different layer, I guess, to our understandings of everyday enslaved life in the slave quarters and right within slave families, um, all of this building on all of this beautiful scholarship, uh, you know, that, that f- folks have been doing for decades now um, in trying to, uh, you know, paint a more accurate picture of these really intimate spaces um, and the kinds of bonds that people shared within them, but to think about how the presence of disability could kind of add to our understandings of this um, was really important to me. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I think that was my f- absolute favorite part of the book was the care work that you discuss. And also, I was very interested to, to learn that this care work crossed gender lines, that, you know, um, the traditional uh, types of labors that are associated to enslaved women, including, you know, raising children, uh, you know, caring for them, um, that in, in the context of the, uh, of the plantation community or the enslaved community, um, individuals with disabilities, um, you know, both male and female, uh, you know, contributed vital services, um, to the care of, of young children. And I, you know, I think that this is a wonderful moment to ask you the question, um, that you you know you briefly alluded to a moment ago about this kind of this having to 
um, balance, this balancing act, if you will, between the perceptions of enslavers that were you know, incredibly negative and pejorative, and also the um, moments in which enslaved people with disabilities were able to um, contribute really valuable services, uh, you know, both effective, but also emotional and practical to other members of their community. And I was hoping that you could say a bit more about the types of labors that they performed, and also how those overlapped or differed from those performed by age or elderly enslaved people. Yeah, I'm happy to talk more about this, because this is such, again, an important part of this chapter, is just sort of thinking about in this kind of space, uh, you know, within which people with disabilities were so devalued from without, like they they did have this, they were sort of flying under the radar, if you will, right? Um, and had a certain kind of, um, you know, just a certain space from which in, within which they could do this kind of labor um, that was very much centered on families and communities. And like some of the labor that I'm talking about, you know, as you mentioned, would be care work connected to children. Um, other times, you know, enslaved people with disabilities would do things like taking care of the slave quarters, like maintenance, things like that, um, tending uh, provisional gardens where folks could grow, you know, additional food stuffs and, and you know, uh, for their for their consumption. Um, taking care of uh, cooking, things like that, right? Um, but in some ways, like this work, like I, I really tried to think deeply about what it meant. And, you know, like I would come across examples, for instance, one formerly enslaved woman in a WPA interview remembered, you know, just how difficult life was um, in terms of the labor um, that she and others in the slave community that she belonged to, like had to, had to endure on a daily basis. And she talked about, you know, that working from sun up to sundown and having very little reprieve. Um, and then she said, you know, one of the sort of high points of their day um, for the enslaved people working in the fields was when a young man, she said he was crippled. Uh, and about nine o'clock, this young crippled boy, she called him, would bring food and water um, to those who'd been laboring all day. And that that was a brief moment of respite and, and reprieve, right, that he was able to provide them. And that was, you know, something that she remembered, you know, decades and decades later, um, was this young man carrying food. Um, in another instance, um, again, in a WPA narrative, uh, was a man who recalled, um, you know, his childhood on a plantation. And he said that his father had a physical disability. Um, and, you know, he was physically impaired. He had a limp. Um, so he was sort of devalued and seen as, quote unquote, worthless um, from the perspective of slaveholders. But what he would do on a daily basis, he would carry children, nursing infants out to the field so that their mothers um, could feed them and have some time, right? Like, and I think in the context of slavery, to be able to nurse, um, you know, your child and to like to take care of your child and to connect with your child and bond with your child, just even for a short while, right? Like these were, you know, how do we even put a um, you know, like describe that in terms of, of the value of that for enslaved mothers to be able to have that opportunity um, to bond with their children and to provide food um, for their child, um, for their infant children. So it was that kind of labor um, that enslaved people with disabilities were providing. And sometimes it did dovetail very much with what we understand about, um, you know, elders in the community, um, you know, 
that's something uh, that I, in the book, you know, I would, I would sometimes say, well, like disabled slash and or elderly slaves, right? Because sometimes, obviously, elderly slaves often were disabled. Um, and they were oftentimes providing some of the same kinds of care, whether it's taking care of children, right? Like sort of minding children while their parents were working, things like that, sometimes cooking. Um, but oftentimes, there were sort of distinctions like that, the example I just gave of the man who carried children out to the fields and back, like he was able to do that because he was a younger man, right? He was a middle-aged sort of man who, in spite of his disability, he was able to do this. Whereas maybe if he had been, you know, a 70-year-old man with a physical impairment, he wouldn't have necessarily been able to do that kind of work. Um, And then there were other enslaved people. There was one young woman, uh, she was referred to by her mistress as Amy of all works, um, because she was just someone who did all sorts of things for the plantation community. She would, you know, um, so she would, she sewed and made clothing and cooked and like just nursed, like she did all kinds of things, um, you know, all different kinds of labor. Um, and, you know, in some ways the plantation mistress recognized the value of the work that she was doing, but at the same time, because this was a woman with a physical disability, um, you know, who was perceived of as being worth very little from a slaveholder's perspective, like they didn't pay too much attention to the kind of work she was doing. I think that's one of the other important takeaways from this chapter is the the um, the centrality of, of enslaved individuals with disabilities to the the maintenance and the reproduction of social cohesion within the enslaved community. Um, and one of the really important arguments that you make in this chapter is that this liminality that you discuss because of the the perceived devaluation in the eyes of white enslavers due to the presence of of disabilities or perceptions about those disabilities or impairments was that um, enslaved individuals were often able to avoid sale and thus were able to um, almost be viewed uh, by members of their community as um, signs of, of, you know, emotional strength and continuity and, you know, in a system that was inherently bound up in the forced separation and sale of, of families and kinship networks. And I was hoping you could talk a bit more about that. Yeah, um, that's absolutely right. I, I, you know, thought a great deal in doing this work and, and based on the sources that I, um, you know, kind of kept uh, seeing and, you know, about these uh, people's, you know, just daily lives and their daily experiences. And like, that was something that sort of leapt off the page at me over and over, like in different contexts and different ways, um, you know, was the reality that, you know, enslaved people with disabilities, because they were seen as, you know, oftentimes not worth anything, sometimes even uh, considered chargeable, which was a shock to me when I first encountered this term, um, you know, in which slaveholders talked about um, enslaved Enslaved people with disabilities um, being actually worth a negative value that it that it cost them to provide support for them, right? That they couldn't recoup through that enslaved person's labor, so they therefore would categorize them as chargeable. Um, but you know the ways like that that made um, those with disabilities basically unsaleable. Like they, it was very difficult. You know, of course, slaveholders didn't want to purchase enslaved people with disabilities because the perception that they couldn't labor. Um, so they did end up being these more stationary figures within slave communities. And again, when we think about 
just the significance of having people who were stationary, who who were stable, right, who weren't being sold away uh, in the context of, of racial chattel slavery in the United States. That's tremendous um, to think these are people who are, you know, keepers of memories and understanding like who, you know, where various people were sold away to, where someone's parents might be, right, how they might locate their parents, that sort of thing, um, as you know, like as well as just the sort of emotional, st- you know, continuity um, of being able to sort of have people who 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 remained in place even perhaps when others um, could be so abruptly um, taken away, sold away. Um, that kind of uh, you know stability um, and the kind of social cohesion that it helped to kind of create is is you know invaluable uh, in the context of racial slavery, where family and community bonds were constantly at risk of being severed. Um, you know, enslaved people were forever vulnerable to that kind of disruption in their world, like this really you know tremendous um, disjunction that could just rip away loved ones and friends and family and community members um, at any given point in time but then there were these figures um, along you know elderly people disabled people who remained um, stationary even as others sort of came and went around them um, that was something I was very interested in kind of thinking about if we to discuss, you know, some of the elements of the third chapter of your your work, which I found also to be equally as fascinating. Um, I was wondering if you could say a bit more about um, the ways in which you argue that colonial slave laws forged a metaphorical connection between blackness and disability. Um, you know, you do such a wonderful job outlining uh, the criminal uh, as well as the manumission and property laws that uh, were rooted in ideologies of of racism and ableism. And I was hoping that you could give our listeners an idea of some of the laws that you discuss or deploy in your work to help bolster this really important and innovative argument. Right. So I see the third chapter of the book as the sort of, um, you know, the space where I start to kind of move away from thinking about lived experiences of disability to thinking about how to, again, thinking about disability as a concept and how disparaging ideas about disability could be linked metaphorically to blackness as a way to sort of justify and excuse um, chattel racial slavery. And, you know, I, I start that work by sort of thinking about the role of law. Um, and, you know, I reach back, as you mentioned, to the colonial laws, uh, like, because this is the sort of formation of, you know, the, the sort of body of slave laws and slave codes, um, you know, that would have such a tremendous influence later by the antebellum years um, in the southern states. So um, I very much do look at, you know, the criminal laws of slavery, um, property laws of slavery, manumission laws, um, you know, to think about uh, you know, how throughout the colonial years, like there were very concrete, explicit ways um, that disability sort of factored into these various laws. Um, so, you know, in thinking about the criminal laws of slavery, for instance, you know, punishments were often um, incredibly disabling throughout the colonial era. Um, some of the laws that I looked at um, that dealt with the criminal laws of slavery, for instance, looked at runaways since, you know, runaways were considered fugitives and considered criminals. Um, you know, there were various laws um, that, you know, could set out different kinds of punishments uh, for runaways. And oftentimes those punishments in the colonial era um, basically revolved around, you know, uh, 
disabling punishments and you know they became increasingly disabling with each uh, attempt at absconding that you know a slave might make um you know they would be punished you know in ways that were incrementally harsher with each attempt to flee um so you know the first attempt to flee might you know result in um you know like a uh having their ears cropped or some sort of physical mark or being flogged or whipped but you know after trying to abscond several times um the most disabling punishment that could be meted out this was in the state of virginia or the colony of virginia i'm sorry um would be having one's achilles he uh, tendon uh severed just above the heel as a way to physically disable someone so that they couldn't run right mm. Um, and that was like shocking to me when I first saw that and I started to think about how disability was just so prevalent, um, in, you know, all of these sort of colonial laws dealing with slavery. Like, I mean, certainly that was the case in the criminal laws of slavery, but, you know, it was also true of property law. Um, like for instance, um, one case that I used, and this was, you know, a little bit later, um, from 1818, I think it was, uh, in Louisiana, in a parish in Louisiana, there was an enslaved man who had been, um, you know, basically he had been hired out by his owner. She hired out his labor to another slaveholder. And while he was in, um, you know, in the sort of possession of this other slaveholder, um, one of this man's slaves disabled um, her enslaved man that she'd hired out. Um, and he had already been blind in one eye. And because of this other injury that he experienced while being hired out, he was then, you know, rendered completely blind. Um, so she saw, you know, she sued um, in court, um, you know, under the sort of property laws of slavery, saying that, you know, her quote unquote property had been damaged and she wanted to be you know, compensated for that. And, you know, the whole case revolved around, you know, how this compensation should happen. And, and, you know, if once she was compensated, in so many different ways, like for the injury itself, for the cost of medical expenses, for the, the price of the enslaved person, like his value, um, like did that then exchange, you know, mean that he should exchange hands, that he had been bought then by the other slaveholder and should no longer be in the, you know, be owned by his original um, mistress. And the whole time I was like, wow, like they never actually even name this man. We never know his name. All that we know is that he became, you know, completely blind. Um, and, you know, he was seen wholly and exclusively as just a piece of property that had been damaged, right? Um, but I, I thought about this case from his perspective and thought, wow, you know, he was, uh, you know, became completely blind. This was something he would have had to learn how to navigate, even as he was then being forced from his original owner to to the man he had been hired out to um, in the presence of the very man who disabled him complete, right? Like, and caused this, the complete blindness. Um, so there were like stories like that that came through um, from these colonial laws too, um, that really demonstrated to me just how pervasive disability was um, and all these different aspects of colonial legislation dealing with slavery. Mm. You write on page 80, quote, slave codes handicapped enslaved blacks in society and that slave codes impose social disabilities onto enslaved people that similarly rationalize racially restrictive laws in the Jim Crow South, end quote. I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated by this concept of symbolic disablement. And I'm wondering when did it dawn on you that these laws served clear ideological as well as practical purposes? Um, I'm thinking about the work of, of Stephanie Camp, for example, in her really important argument that um, the laws of slavery sought to keep bond people 
stationary in terms of space. And, you know, as in a response to that, they created these rival geographies to challenge, you know, uh, past laws uh, and what have you. Um, but I think that this is such a, an interesting contribution to um, the intellectual history of slate, uh, the intellectual history of race um, in early America. And, you know, I just I'm, 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 I would love to hear you say a bit more about the, the this concept and also, you know, the ways in which you were able to parse out both the literal as well as the ideological dimensions of, of this language and the connections between um, uh, racism as well as ableism in the law. Yeah, that was something that, you know, when I was researching this chapter and writing this chapter, you know, I kept thinking about um like slave codes, right, and past laws and, um, you know, laws that forbid enslaved people from, you know, gaining access to education and literacy and, um, you know, and I thought like, what, like, how, like, how did these, like, what do these teach us about disability or how were these, these kinds of laws connected to disability? And I mean, when you think about something like past laws, you know, not being able to move freely or to travel from one place to another without a written path. Uh, from a slaveholder or, you know, uh, you know, another person in a position of authority over, um, over you, that how, you know, just how physically sort of constrictive that is, right? That that is actually like literally crippling or metaphorically crippling someone, right? By taking away their ability to move freely um, or, you know, sometimes, you know, even things like the, like um, the, 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 practice, um, the legal practice that denied enslaved people the ability to testify in court, right, essentially rendered them mute, took away their voice um, legally um, in legal spaces. Um, and in part that that was rooted in this idea of, um, uh, you know, of, of sort of comprehension and, you know, like this was the justification um, for not allowing enslaved people to testify was that they weren't competent enough, right? So again, sort of evoking ideas about disability or like the inability to serve in such a capacity. Um, and then finally, of course, those, you know, anti sort of literacy and education um, slave codes that, that were sort of bound up with, with that. I mean, you know, I, I thought extensively about that as well. And I, I, I sort of kept coming back to the work of Frederick Douglass, who talked about, you know, like these were some of the most egregious and most hated, I think, um, kinds of slave codes. And, and you know, Frederick Douglass talked about, you know, like how to sort of create, um, you know, enslaved people was to create like thoughtless people, right? Like folks who could not think independently, who didn't have knowledge or access to knowledge. And, you know, that this was a strategy, it was a tactic. And, you know, that made me sort of think about, antebellum era kind of understandings of things like feeble-mindedness and idiocy that were kind of emerging in this time. And I thought, wow, like that's precisely what these kinds of slave codes symbolically did, right? Um, by forcing enslaved people into this position where they couldn't access, you know, education, formal education. They couldn't, um, you know, become literate, learn how to read or write. Um, and that was really surprising to me. I think whenever I, I researched that a bit further, um, I came across, uh, again, sort of firsthand accounts from formerly enslaved people where they remembered, um, you know, being warned by, like one man remembered his father was warned by um, the slave 
slaveholder that he had taught his father how to do arithmetic um, because he was a carpenter. And he had warned us, you know, this young man's father, though, that not to be caught because he said, if you're caught and they and folks know that you know how to read and write and that you're educated, um, you know, they'll cut cut your hand off. So to me, it was like, wow, like, so here's the, the actual literal punishment of dis- disabling someone, right? Punishing them for, um, you know, for transgressing this law of learning how to read and write. And it was sort of this space where kind of, in my mind, it was like the metaphorical and the real kind of came together. Um, but it, it was so powerful for me to, to kind of think about the symbolic function of these laws. And this is something, you know, a friend of mine, Dennis Tyler, has a forthcoming um, work where he's looking at um, sort of ideas about disability in the Jim Crow South um, and kind of developing these ideas further because they, they were sort of resurrected later. Um, you know, again, when we think about things like racial segregation and, you know, the ways that this, um, those kinds of of laws, you know, restricted people's, again, their ability to move freely. And, you know, like it sort of resurrected some of these ideas that had been around um, throughout the era of racial slavery. Absolutely. And also to think of the the physically disabling uh, wounds that were inflicted, say, in the era of slavery, such as castration, were also similarly deployed during the era of the nadir to before lynching an enslaved man, they were often castrated. Um, and to think about the, um, you know, the, these moments where the, to disabling punishments were inflicted prior to death, it definitely seems to be a, a longer practice that has its roots in slavery. Um, in chapter in chapter four of your book, you explore the contradictory, discursive, and the ontological connections that radical abolitionists, but as well as you know, fugitive slaves and pro-slavery advocates forged between blackness, slavery, and disability in their respective political movements. What were the competing aims of each of these groups? And what what degrees of success did each group achieve by linking together ideas about race, slavery, and disability? Yeah, um, I think, you know, as I sort of progressed through the second half of the book, you know, the chapter where I looked at slave laws, and I also looked at sort of emerging medical discourses about race in that chapter and how they were sort of bound up with one another. Um, And then I sort of thought about political rhetoric, which is the work that I was trying to do in this chapter. And one thing that I was really struck by um, in in doing the research for this chapter and writing this chapter um, was kind of thinking about like the ways in which pro-slavery advocates as well as you know abolitionists would mobilize this rhetoric of disability behind their very different arguments <laughs> um you know so on the one hand you have abolitionists who uh you know were sort of kind of um constantly talking about things like the disabling um, you know, impacts of slavery um, on enslaved people. Um, you know, they, they, they talked at length often, you know, various abolitionist materials, you know, whether it was political tracts or I even look at, you know, almanacs and calendars and different, uh, you know, actual like illustrations of slavery from the perspective of, of, uh, of abolitionists. And, and they sort of persistently, um, you know, kind of trotted out representations of disability as a way to garner sympathy, um, right? Like this was, you know, a pretty common tactic for abolitionists by by talking about the impact of disability on enslaved people. It garnered pity, right? It caused other white folks to sort of see how disabling this institution was and to then, you know, pity enslaved people who experienced various kinds of, you know, disabilities because of slavery and could then sort of 
mobilize them and get them on board with the abolitionist cause. Um, and, you know, on the other hand, you know, on the other sort of end of the political spectrum were pro-slavery advocates who in their own way were also kind of mobilizing the rhetoric of disability. Um, you know, so there were examples, uh, you know, where I talked about the work of, say, uh, George Fitzhugh, for instance, right? Like his work, um, uh, Cannibals All, where he sort of talks about, uh, he compares and contrasts the institution of slavery with free laborers in the North, right? And he says, oh, well, under slavery, like when people are aged and older and elderly and they're decrepit and they become disabled, like under slavery, they have the love and care not only of their benevolent masters, right, but also of their families. And, and you know, they're not sort of thrown out as worthless the way that they are under, uh, you know, under the sort of more ruthless system of wage labor in the North. And so he sort of trots out these, you know, very, you know, <laughs> strategic and, you know, often inaccurate representations of disability um, among enslaved people as a way to um, to build support for, you know, for a, a very pro-slavery kind of position. Um, but I think, you know, overall, like the argument that I make in this chapter is that abolitionists were far more successful with utilizing the rhetoric of disability to kind of garner support for um, for abolitionism uh, than were um, pro-slavery advocates. Um, and partly it was because they, you know, abolitionists were um, very willing to, um, you know, engage the kind of emotional sort of aspects of this rhetoric um, in ways that pro-slavery advocates weren't. Um, a lot of times pro-slavery rhetoric often sort of skewed more towards like medical or scientific understandings um, as a way to kind of justify uh, the enslavement of, of folks in the South. Um, and in the long term, that maybe was more successful, like after, you know, after slavery ended, like, you know, the rise of scientific racism and, you know, that kind of rhetoric became far more prevalent and, you know, more powerful because it was seen as objective, right? Um, so maybe in the long term, you know, we might think of that kind of basis for those sorts of arguments as being a bit more effective, but at least, you know, at the time, you know, in the antebellum years, abolitionists were far more um, able to utilize the rhetoric of disability. But, you know, regardless, um, both groups of, of, you know, like if we think about abolitionists and pro-slavery folks, they were still sort of utilizing these ideas about disability that were deeply flawed. Um, so, like, that's part of the argument that I make as well, is that abolitionists really sort of missed, I think, um, some of the most powerful um, you know, aspects of thinking about disability, which would have been to think about how, you know, think about it more strategically, to think about how disability is also very much connected to power and racialized ideas about power. Um, and, you know, it, it could have been far more analytical and far-reaching than it was. The fifth and, you know, the final, the fifth and final chapter of your book, uh, One Hell of a Metaphor, Disability and Race on the Antebellum Stage, explores the cultural production and performance of race, disability, and gender in antebellum American popular culture. And you focus specifically on freak shows and blackface minstrelsy, uh, which were performances that you argue strengthened perceptions of racial difference and white supremacy, but also relied heavily on tropes of, of, of disability uh, and blackness. And when did, I'm just curious in terms of thinking of the trajectory of your work, to think of the social relations, to think of the, the political dimensions and legal dimensions um, and the medical dimensions in earlier chapters. Um, I'm curious to know the, you know, the kind of the backstory, the inspiration to this chapter and to learn a bit more about when it became apparent to you 
that spectacles of disability, race, and gender were central to these performances, and also why you think scholars have failed to acknowledge the spectacle of disability in these performances previously. Yeah, um, I think, you know, when I, I kind of thought about this idea um, and, and thought about sort of cultural productions and the ways that they might reinforce, you know, these overlapping kind of ideas about race and disability, racism and ableism. And, you know, I was very inspired by like disability scholars uh, who, who, you know, I was reading really, you know, poignant work about freak shows, um, work of folks like Rosemary Garland Thompson and others, um, you know, who focused on, you know, these sort of spectacles of disability. And I was really intrigued and, and sort of interested in thinking about um, folks like Millie and Christine McCoy, um, who were conjoined twins, uh, you know, who were born on a North Carolina plantation, who ended up on the freak show circuit, um, you know, and, you know, a lot of times they're, um, like displays of Millie and Christine McCoy, especially as they were older, what what was so shocking about the twins, in addition to their, you know, to them being conjoined twins, um, is that, you know, the, 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 they were often sort of presented in like really sort of high style fashion, like their clothes were really elegant and the girls were, um, you know, taught to speak in different languages so they could hold, you know, like one twin could talk to someone in French and the other twin could talk to someone else in a different language and German or whatever. Um, and this was, you know, like it was that contrast, that juxtaposition of seeing like uh, conjoined black women who were highly educated, like in this fine, like really fine garments, like, but this was part of what um, drew audiences to them, right? It's what made them quote unquote freaks because they, um, you know, they were so far outside of uh, the quote unquote norm of what audiences were expecting. And like when I was reading this literature about freak shows and thinking about it in the context of slavery and ideas about race, um, you know, I, I, in the back of my mind, I think I just started to think about um, blackface performances as well, um, because they both sort of emerged around the same time. So I, I also sort of started to read more widely in the kind of historiography of blackface, um, particularly the work of David Rodiger, but Eric Lott and other folks. Um, and, you know, I was immediately struck by, you know, just the, the role of, you know, things like exaggerated features and characteristics and qualities like that, that blackface performers would enact on the stage. Um, and then I thought, wow, you know, like it, it's really grotesque and disabling, right? Like these over exaggerations and, um, you know, sort of stereotypical depictions um, that are, are sort of taken to the, the, the nth degree, right, by these performers on stage. Um, and I started to just sort of do more digging. And, you know, it was interesting because I came across, you know, some of the sort of origin stories of blackface minstrelsy where Thomas uh, Daddy Rice uh, was inspired to create create the character of Jim Crow. Supposedly, he was looking out of, you know, a window at the hotel across from the stage where he had been performing or the theater where he was performing. And as he's looking out the window, he sees this elderly enslaved man um, dancing and singing a song while he's working. Um, but the man had a physical disability. Um, so Rice thought it was funny, right, that the man was singing and dancing when he had this physical impairment that caused a limp. And um, so that was sort of his inspiration to create 
create this character that he would then, you know, enact on the stage. And, you know, so in that sense, disability was so central to, you know, even to the history of blackface minstrelsy, or perhaps was, like, this is the most um, recounted story of the the supposed origins of blackface. Um, But, you know, blackface and freak shows emerged within a decade of one another. So they were sort of drawing on the same kinds of impulses um, and the same sort of curiosity with, um, you know, sort of blurring boundaries, I think, um, and between race and disability and gender um, and, and really sort of allowing audience members to kind of gaze upon folks who, who you know, were kind of so purportedly so dramatically different, right, that in many ways they could affirm audience members' sense of their own selves and their own sense of their own normality and superiority even. Um, so yeah, like it was a, a kind of a nebulous process the way that I sort of came to this chapter. And and this is probably my other favorite chapter of the book. It was one of the most difficult to write because it's, you know, it's so... Um, I mean, it's just like the, the racist uh, sort of, you know, um, stereotypes and ableist stereotypes, like there's just so, you know, <laughs> over the top. And it's it's so hard to sort of think about these really, um, you know, difficult ideas uh, simultaneously. But I, I think by putting these, these different kinds of cultural performances side by side, it really sort of helps illuminate the ways that disability, disparaging ideas about disability helped construct ideas about blackness and the ways that disparaging ideas about blackness helped construct ideas about disability, right? They sort of work together and kind of co-constructing these categories and it's really powerful. Um, And then finally, I'll just say this before I turn it back to you, but I think, you know, this chapter also for me, like I I write about, um, you know, a man who uh, his name was, uh, um, Thomas Dilward, his, his stage name was quote unquote Japanese Tommy. And he was a little person. He was a black man. Um, he was one of, one of only two black men to perform in blackface before the civil war. And, you know, I was really intrigued by Thomas Dilward's experiences because, you know, I feel like he was someone who was able to sort of read the situation and kind of capitalize on, you know, performing in blackface as a little person, like he was able to um, create, you know, a a name for himself um, in, you know, this, this incredibly um, racist kind of performance, but he, you know, he made a name for himself, he built a career, um, you know, and, and it was interesting to me, I think scholars of disability talk about freak shows, and they often argue, like, were these, um, were these freak shows spaces of, you know, of just exploitation, purely the exploitation of people with disabilities, sort of putting them on display to be gawked at by non-disabled people, or were they somewhat spaces of agency, like where people with disabilities, you know, made the choice to um, engage in these kinds of performances. And, you know, like, I don't know myself personally, I I don't particularly, uh, you know, think it's valuable to frame this as an either or kind of question like you know freak shows could be either exploitative they could be both exploitative and you know like an expression of someone's agency and I thought the same with Thomas Dilward right like he was someone who as a black man in the antebellum north um, who was a little person you know this was an opportunity for him to make money to travel um, and you know after 
um, you know, after the Civil War, in fact, you know, Thomas Dilward did use the money that he made performing on stage, you know, in blackface. And, and interestingly, he performed, you know, he's a little person who performed in blackface. He performed, um, usually performed a female character. So he was also sort of gender bending and cross dressing like in his performances. So he was blurring all kinds of boundaries. And of course, his stage name was was um, Japanese Tommy. So he would also sort of play with ethnic identities too. But, you know, in this process, he, he made money and he made a living. And, you know, after the Civil War, he used some of the money that he earned to, you know, file suit against someone who discriminated against him in, uh, in a restaurant, right, who wouldn't serve him. And it's unclear if he wouldn't be served because, you know, of racial discrimination or because of disability discrimination. But whatever the case, um, he used the resources, the financial resources that he made, you know, um, you know, on the minstrel stage to um, to kind of challenge the discrimination that he faced in society. So I, I don't know, like there are these really kind of complicated questions that arise um, in a chapter like this as well that speak to resistance. And like these, this is also a theme that, that kind of came up in many different ways throughout the book. Absolutely. I, I would hope, though, the field has moved beyond the accommodationist versus integrationist kind of line of thinking in these in these venues. Um, and, and to think about just to think about the lived experience. And as you just really beautifully put it, the, the different types of boundaries that were broken, despite these perceptions of, of, abil- of, of you know, of, of, um, of his ability or, you know, um, I, I just think that, that when you discuss that in the final chapter of the book, it, it seems very clear that all of the momentum throughout the entire book of thinking about lived experience, but also social constructions, um, they were really uh, wedded very beautifully uh, in this discussion about his life and his performances. Um, and so in our remaining time, I, I kind of wanted to ask you two quick questions. Um, the first is, what what do you hope that the lasting impact of the mark of slavery will be in the interrelated fields of African-American history and the field of critical disability studies? And also, what are you working on now? Right. These are great questions. And, you know, I mean, in terms of the, the first one, um, about the lasting impact and what I hope the impact of this book will be, I mean, I think probably in just its, its broadest sense, like, I, I think it's so powerful to think about, you know, how different categories, blackness, whiteness, you know, disabled, non-disabed, um, male, female, what, like how, how these categories are constructed sort of alongside one another and through one another. And I think whenever we, when we, when we think about those, you know, about that history, like it, it makes us sort of think about like, you know, how important it is, I guess, that we, that we keep our eye on the ball. <laughs> um, and we think about like, what, what are those continued sort of interrelationships between these categories? Like, how do they continue to work by and through one another? Like what this history teaches us is about the intersection specifically about blackness and disability, but whiteness and non-disability, right? And I, I think it should really challenge us to, to keep in mind, like how, you know, how disability, um, problematizes and, you know, complicates experiences of race and how, you know, experiences of race complicate 
you know, how folks endure and experience disability. I mean, and I, I think these are really relevant topics to this day. I mean, even when we think about contemporary issues, things like police brutality, um, you know, folks in recent years have begun to point out just how often, you know, targets of police brutality obviously are often Black men, but how often disability often, you know, is a part of their experience as well. Um, you know, and like, it's really powerful to kind of think about those interconnections. Um, another area where I think these kinds of, you know, like what this history begs us to kind of keep in mind is to think about this in, in, you know, with regards to health and health disparities. And I mean, even now in this time of COVID-19, right, like how, how does blackness and disability intersect in ways um, that really complicate folk, people's lives? Um, and gosh, I'm talking off the cuff, but there was a man in Texas, I think in Austin, and I, I cannot recall his name off the top of my head, and I apologize for that. I should. Um, but he was a man who um, was, I think, paraplegic, a uh, black man um, who then contracted COVID-19. And, you know, basically, like there's a court case, um, you know, there's it's it, it sort of stake right now where the families have sued um, the hospital and the doctors who were, who were you know, charged with providing care for this man because they basically, you know, let him die. Um, and, you know, that's the argument, the allegation that's been made against, you know, against this, the, the physicians who are taking care of this man because, you know, folks said, oh, well, his quality of life, right, because he's disabled and, you know, so he wouldn't have much of a quality of life. So how long should we keep him, right, on life-sustaining treatment, et cetera? And it is about this intersection of race and disability in this man's life that led to his death. Um, you know, these are really powerful questions that, you know, we should really bear in mind. And like, these are the kinds of things that I hope my work, um, you know, challenges people to keep in mind, um, to think about intersectionality and to think about disability as being a central part of, of intersectionality. When we think about race and gender and class, like we should also be thinking about disability because they all sort of work together. Um, and that's incredibly powerful. Um, and it, you know, just opens up so many different ways um, that we can think about our own world today and that we might think about issues of solidarity, et cetera. And then I think to answer your second question, like what am I working on now? Gosh, <laughs> uh, a lot of things. I'm thinking about my second book project, um, which for me, I'm very interested in sort of thinking about um, education in the South, uh, particularly institutions for students of color who were deaf and blind that were sort of doubly segregated by race and disability um, and just how these institutions have not, um, you know, sort of, they, they've kind of been erased, I think, um, from, you know, the historical record. When we think about Black education after emancipation, folks think about Freedmen's Bureau of Schools, and they think about the rise of segregation and segregated schools, and they think about later, and you know, about the Brown versus Board of Education decision in the 50s and integration. And, but, you know, these schools, um, you know, where uh, deaf and blind children of color attended um, were segregated as well and, and, you know, aren't part of this narrative. And when we focus on them, it tells us a little bit of a different story, I think, about the history of Black education in the South and the history of, of segregation and integration and in education. So that's one thing. Um, I'm also working on an edited collection with Stephanie Hunt Kennedy, um, called Cripping the Archive. Um, so we're thinking about the ways uh, that disability um, sort of impacts, you know, archives, like 
from what is archived and whose stories are deemed important enough to remember uh, and to be sort of, you know, uh, maintained and housed in actual archives to things like accessibility and being able to access archives and how that, you know, like these sorts of things impact the kinds of histories that we tell. Um, again, to sort of go back to that uh, really well-known Douglas Bayton quote um, that says, disability is everywhere in history once you begin to look for it, but conspicuously absent from the histories that we write. I think in this collection, what we're trying to do is ask the question, why? Like, how, why and how? Like, how does this happen? Um, so we're thinking about disability in the context of archives. Um, and then finally, I am working on, you know, sort of tentatively working on an article project where I'm really interested in kind of thinking a bit more theoretically, like expanding on like my understanding of things like the meta language of race and intersectionality, like in the context of disability and the history of disability and the history of slavery um, that I think for me, like really revolves around language. Um, you know, I'm really interested in sort of thinking about these terms like chargeable, like useless, um, you know, that kind of con consistently kind of pop up um, with regards to enslaved people with disabilities and kind of thinking about like what we can learn from this kind of language and this sort of, you know, these various theories, um, if we think about the role that disability plays in, in the construction of race. Well, thank you so much, Jen, for joining me today to talk more about your new book. Uh, for our listeners, as a reminder, um, Professor Barclay's new book, The Mark of Slavery, is available uh, through the University of Illinois Press. Thank you again, Jen. Oh, thank you so much.